Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 115, Space Shuttle Flight 44, STS-44. Infrared Signatures and Caterpillar Men. Last time, we covered the flight of Space Shuttle Discovery on STS-48. The flight focused on the deployment of URs, the Upper Atmosphere Research Satellite. The spacecraft would spend the next 14 years keeping an eye on the ozone layer and shedding light on the mysterious mesosphere. I have one last interesting note about URs that I forgot to include last time. If you were to take a very close look at its attitude control electronics, they might seem familiar. Remember how back on STS-41C, Pinky Nelson and Ox Van Hoften replaced a box of faulty attitude control electronics on the Solar Maximum mission? Well, it seems that they did not just chuck the broken box into the garbage, because it's back and it's flying in space again. That's right, URs isn't just using the same model of electronics as SMM, it's literally using the same box. Where it's been for the last seven years, I'm not really sure, but somewhere in that time they refurbished it and here it is again. It makes sense, since both SMM and URs were based on the same multi-mission modular spacecraft design, but it still sort of blew my mind when I realized that it was literally the same piece of metal. Neat. Before we get to our main topic today, it's time for another check-in on the Galileo spacecraft. As you're now well aware, Galileo is an uncrewed spacecraft that is on its way to Jupiter. It was deployed by Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-34 back in October of 1989, and has been taking the scenic route to the gas giant planet. Since the high-powered shuttle Centaur upper stage had to be swapped out for an IUS, Galileo had to be a little creative about its trajectory, utilizing a series of gravity-assist flybys. We last checked in with it in December of 1990, when it flew past the Earth in order to gain a boost in speed. It's been almost a year, and Galileo is about to add another first to the history of spaceflight. On October 29, 1991, Galileo became the first spacecraft to visit an asteroid, flying within 1,600 kilometers of the tiny celestial body, Gaspra. Believe it or not, this encounter, in 1991, is the first time that humans were ever able to see an asteroid in space up close. Up until this point, they had always been distant points of light. The flyby, and downlink of data from it, were complicated by Galileo's stuck high-gain antenna, with only 10 bits per second available for telemetry during the encounter. Mission controllers were hoping to get 16 photos of Gaspra, but to account for uncertainty in navigation, Galileo actually took 150 photos in a pattern that should ensure the desired number of good photos. Each photo was about 11 megabytes in size, which would require around 80 hours of time on the valuable deep space network, so the plan was to wait until Galileo was closer to Earth to downlink the photos. Unfortunately, that wouldn't be for over a year, so scientists were going to have to be patient. That flyby was in December of 1992, and it's when we'll check in next. Returning our attention to matters closer to home, Atlantis is on the launch pad and has an important payload ready to go. Today's mission is the 8th space shuttle mission for the Department of Defense, but it's also the second unclassified DoD flight, so we get to hear all about it. This actually wasn't always the case, and as recently as a year and a half before the mission, it was still considered classified. So lucky break for us. Filling Atlantis's payload bay was a Defense Support Program spacecraft, specifically DSP-16. You can tell it's a military payload because it has a nice, bland name. Even more bland than usual. Have you ever seen the movie War Games and wondered how the folks at NORAD knew about those nuclear missiles that were making their way to the United States? 
Or maybe a nuclear bomb goes off somewhere in the world and somehow the Pentagon knows within seconds. How could they know that? The answer is the Defense Support Program. The jobs of these spacecraft were to sit on their perch in geostationary orbit and watch for intense infrared outbursts. You know, the type associated with rocket launches and nuclear detonations. The flight would also be the latest in a series of flights that were ramping up the duration of shuttle missions. These provided a good opportunity for additional science to be performed, but were also a bit of a science experiment on their own. What operational problems would the crew encounter? Did mission control need to change their approach? And as always, how were the crew's bodies affected during the planned 10-day mission? To find out, let's meet that crew. Commanding the flight was Frederick Gregory, but that actually wasn't always the case. In July of 1990, a little over a year before this flight, NASA announced disciplinary action against two shuttle commanders, Hoot Gibson and Dave Walker. Gibson isn't really the focus of today's episode, but it probably makes sense to cover both commanders at the same time. In 1990, Hoot Gibson participated in an air race, and another racer clipped Gibson's wing while trying to pass him. Gibson was able to recover and land safely, but the other pilot was killed. The accident drew NASA's attention to the race, and since astronauts are not allowed to take place in high-risk activities anymore, Gibson had command of STS-46 taken from him and was grounded for one year. Also disciplined was Dave Walker, who we last saw flying as commander of STS-30, which deployed the Venus probe Magellan. On May 16, 1989, Walker was flying a T-38 jet near Dulles International Airport and had been instructed to descend to 8,000 feet. Instead, he drifted down to almost 7,000 feet, which had been assigned to a Pan Am A310 with 176 people on board. By the Pan Am pilot's estimate, Walker was 500 feet in front of the passenger jet and 100 feet above it. What makes this scarier is that the A310 was heading north while the T-38 was heading east, so Walker essentially buzzed the plane. As a result of this incident, Walker had the command of STS-44 taken away from him. Mistakes happen, but in the case of a serious breach of safety like this, they have consequences. So both Gibson and Walker would keep their feet firmly on the ground for a little while. And while no one can be completely sure what went on in the head of Deke Slayton back in the 60s, this seems to be the first time that NASA had taken a spaceflight away from an astronaut for disciplinary reasons. Don't feel too bad, though. Both Gibson and Walker would go on to command another two missions each, so we'll see them again soon. Alright, let's meet our actual crew. As I mentioned, commanding the flight was Fred Gregory, who we last saw commanding STS-33. STS-33 was also a DoD mission, but it was classified, so we're not entirely sure what it was doing, but suspect that it deployed the Magnum Electronics Intelligence Satellite. Gregory was enjoying his time as an astronaut, and had been kicking around an idea of trying to stick around long enough to have a chance at the controls of all five spaceworthy orbiters. But after this flight, he worked as a family escort for another crew. Seeing up close the stress and anxiety inflicted on the crew's families got to him. He didn't make a decision at that time, but in an oral history, he said that in retrospect, that was when he began to decide to retire from spaceflight. Soon after this flight, he would move out east to NASA headquarters to lead safety and mission assurance, making this his third and final mission. Joining Gregory up front was our pilot, Tom Henricks. Terence Thomas Henricks was born on July 5, 1952 in Bryan, Ohio. He earned a bachelor's in civil engineering from the U.S. Air Force Academy, and later a master's in public administration. 
After graduating from the Air Force Academy, he headed down to Selma, Alabama and learned how to fly, serving in F-4 fighter squadrons in England and Iceland. He attended the Air Force Test Pilot School and stayed at Edwards, becoming an F-16 test pilot. He was selected as an astronaut in June of 1985, and this is his first of four missions. Sitting behind Hendricks was Mission Specialist 1, Jim Voss. James Voss was born on March 3, 1949 in Cordova, Alabama. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in aerospace engineering before heading off to the Army as a second lieutenant. He served in a variety of roles with the Army, including platoon leader, intelligence staff officer, company commander, and even a teacher at the U.S. Military Academy. He attended the Navy's test pilot school, and after a few projects as a flight test engineer, was assigned to work at the Johnson Space Center in 1984. He supported shuttle and payload testing at Kennedy for a number of missions, and participated in the STS-51L accident investigation. He was selected as an astronaut in June of 1987, and this is his first of five flights. Mission Commander Gregory may not have flown on all five spaceworthy orbiters, but this guy eventually will. Mission Specialist 2, Story Musgrave. Musgrave is the only astronaut to have flown on Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavor. For now, though, he's more focused on the task at hand. He'll be serving as flight engineer, taking photos of the DSP deployment, and running some of the science experiments. He'll also be serving as the control for some of the exercise science and gets to just drift around for the whole mission without exercising. Lucky duck. This is Musgrave's fourth of six missions. Rounding out the main crew was Mission Specialist 3, Mario Runco. Mario Runco was born in the Bronx in New York City on January 26, 1952. He earned a bachelor's in Earth and Planetary Science and a master's in Atmospheric Physics, so astronaut seems like a pretty good gig for him. Runco had an interesting path to space. After earning his master's, he spent a year working with the U.S. Geological Survey, performing groundwater surveys on Long Island. Next, he joined the New Jersey State Police. After a year of that, he joined the Navy. But even within the Navy, he went through a bunch of different roles. Research meteorologist, naval surface warfare officer, laboratory instructor, and commander of a unit performing hydrographic and oceanographic surveys. He was selected as an astronaut in June of 1987, and this is his first of three flights. And last but not least, payload specialist one, Tom Hennen. Thomas Hennen was born on August 17, 1952 in Albany, Georgia, but grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Hennen is an army man through and through, and his official biography has a ridiculously long list of military instruction courses he has completed. The focus, though, was on intelligence and imagery analysis. Over more than 20 years, he became an expert at analyzing imagery and wringing every possible bit of data out of it. That expertise makes him the perfect choice for payload specialist on this flight, as we'll see in a bit when we talk about the Terra Scout experiment. And for your second bit of space trivia for the day, Hennen was the only warrant officer with the Army to fly in the entire shuttle program. This is his first and only flight. STS-44 was originally scheduled to launch in July of 1991, but was pushed back to November, at least in part due to echoes from the Summer of Hydrogen Leaks. That was solved last year, but there's only so much hardware to go around, and major delays like that can propagate through the schedule. Eventually, the flight was scheduled for November 19, 1991, but had to be scrubbed at T-minus 9 hours due to an issue with the payload's upper stage. Luckily for the crew, they had not even entered the vehicle yet. On November 24th, they were ready to try again, and this time the countdown went smoothly until the very end. 
A minor delay was caused by a leaky oxygen valve, and then something popped up on what's called the COLA, Collision on Launch Assessment. Basically, some satellite was getting too close to where the shuttle would be if they launched on time. Wow, space is getting pretty busy. But eventually the valve was fixed and the sky above was clear, and Mission Commander Gregory radioed down, Atlantis is ready, we're ready to burn paint. At 6.44pm Eastern Time, Atlantis lifted off for the 10th time into an uneventful ascent, arriving in a 360km high orbit. Actually, it's pretty good that the ascent was uneventful, because after the flight, Story Musgrave said that the pin in his shoulder belt tightening mechanism came out, so it wasn't maintaining tension. The solution? They just tied a knot in it, and that seemed to strap him in securely enough. Though, maybe this quasi-strapped ascent gave Musgrave ideas for something else we'll see later down the road. After main engine cutoff, the crew began configuring the shuttle for the mission, setting up the equipment, opening the payload bay doors, and most importantly, beginning the process to deploy DSP. The DSP spacecraft took up a pretty big chunk of the payload bay, especially with its inertial upper stage attached to the bottom. The spacecraft itself was about 10 meters long and 4 meters across, almost 7 meters once the solar arrays were deployed later. Not including the upper stage, it weighed about 2,400 kilograms, and adjusted for inflation, it cost $350 million 2020 dollars. As mentioned earlier, DSP was a tool used by NORAD, specifically as part of their Tactical Warning and Attack Assessment System. DSP's job would be to get itself to geostationary orbit, face towards the Earth, and then begin to rotate at 6 RPM, making a full rotation every 10 seconds. With this spin, its sensitive instruments would sweep over the entire face of the hemisphere, keeping an eye out for any intense sources of infrared light. Basically, any literal hotspots. And when I say this thing is sensitive, I mean it. These satellites were able to pick up stuff like fighter jets using afterburners, or ohms burns by the shuttle in low Earth orbit, all from nearly 36,000 kilometers away. Their primary use was to keep an eye out for nuclear detonations or intercontinental ballistic missiles carrying nuclear weapons, which of course everybody hopes never actually happens. But even without such a horrible event happening, the DSP satellites are pretty useful. You'll have to find some other podcasts for more details on this, but one problem during the Gulf War was Iraqi forces deploying mobile Scud missiles and launching them at targets in the region. These things couldn't fly for thousands of miles, but they could go pretty far and do a lot of damage. Using two DSP satellites, NORAD was able to keep an eye out for these dangerous weapons. Within two minutes of a launch, they would have detected the event and figured out what it was and where it was. Within six minutes of launch, they were able to warn people at the missile's target, giving them about 90 seconds to take cover. 90 seconds may not sound like much, but it's enough time to run to a bunker. It can be the difference between life and death. Plus, by pinpointing the position of the launch, fighter jets can be sent to take out the mobile launch platform. If nothing else, that's pretty impressive on a technical level. With Mission Specialist Voss at the controls, the preparations for deployment went smoothly, and just 6 hours and 19 minutes into the flight, the DSP spacecraft was sent on its way. Shortly afterwards, its IUS delivered it to geostationary orbit, where it positioned itself above the Indian Ocean in order to keep an eye on Russia and China. With the primary objective of the mission already achieved, the crew settled in for a lengthy stay on orbit. On the second day of the flight, the crew awoke to a special surprise. Piping through the speakers on board Atlantis were the dulcet tones of Patrick Stewart, 
which I cannot hope to replicate, but I can read what he said. Space. The Final Frontier. This is the voyage of the Space Shuttle Atlantis. Its 10-day mission? To explore new methods of remote sensing and observation of the planet Earth. To seek out new data on radiation in space and a new understanding of the effects of microgravity on the human body. To boldly go where 255 men and women have gone before. Hello, Fred, Tom, Story, Jim, Tom, and especially Mario. This is Patrick Stewart, choosing not to outrank you as Captain Jean-Luc Picard, saying that we are confident of a productive and successful mission. Make it so. Mario Runko got a special shout-out since he was known to be a big Star Trek fan, and Capcom Marsha Ivins had reached out to Patrick Stewart about recording the greeting. That's a pretty good way to start a day in space. And in true Star Trek fashion, they even saw another crewed spacecraft fly by later that day. But instead of Klingons, they were Russian. The Russian space station Mir passed within 40 kilometers, and the STS-44 crew were able to see a point of light go zipping by, knowing that there were humans on that light. In fact, one of those humans, Sergei Krikalev, will be joining us on a shuttle mission not too long from now. Flight Day 2 wasn't all good news, though. While using the treadmill, the crew reported a grinding noise coming from the device. The noise went away, but when the next crew member went for a run, the noise returned, the belt started getting harder to move, and eventually jammed completely. While we're talking about it, one note about the treadmill that I don't think I've ever actually mentioned is how they run on it. After all, wouldn't they just float away? Normally, yes, but the crew used a harness of bungee cords attached to the treadmill to keep them grounded. I can't imagine it felt quite like normal running, but I guess it was close enough. That's important to know, since apparently, once the treadmill broke, they next attempted to use the treadmill handle and bungee cords to sort of approximate a rowing machine, which then just broke the treadmill even more. So, no more exercise for this flight. Something that did work was the lower body negative pressure device. We've seen this a few times now, going all the way back to Skylab. In fact, the version flying on the shuttle was basically the same idea, except that it could be collapsed down to fit in the mid-deck lockers. When a person flies in space, there's suddenly no more gravity pulling fluids down to their lower extremities. So the fluid moves up, making it feel like you're just permanently stuffy. It's one of the reasons astronauts go through so much hot sauce. When they return to gravity, the fluid moves back down again and can result in lightheadedness and even fainting. This is inconvenient, but not really a showstopper unless you're the pilot crew. The commander, and potentially the pilot, need to be able to resist the G-forces of re-entry and successfully land the shuttle. First time, every time. The G-forces on the shuttle were a lot more mild than something like Apollo, but after a couple of weeks in space, it was still significant. What the lower body negative pressure, or LBNP, device did was to force that downward fluid shift while still in space. A crew member would put their legs into the device and cinch it around their waist. The device would then lower the pressure inside, causing their legs to slightly expand, which caused fluid to shift back down to their lower body. The hypothesis was that using this device for four hours, in what they called a soak, on the day before re-entry, would help the pilot crew's bodies better handle the entry. I think they basically wanted to remind the body what gravity is like so that it could prepare itself. With all that in mind, the crew had a sequence of stints in the LBNP planned. There were the 4-hour long soaks, which would theoretically help their body adapt, and 36-minute long ramps. The ramp would get to a lower pressure more quickly, and if I understand correctly, was less about treatment and more about provoking a response. 
By watching the crew members' blood pressure and heart rate during a ramp, you'd get an idea of how they would handle re-entry. So, several crew members would do something like ramp one day to set a baseline, soak the next day, and then ramp again the next day to see if there was any difference. I just hope they brought a book to read during the four-hour-long soaks. More interesting than sitting in a bag on the mid-deck and staring at the wall was what payload specialist Tom Hennen would be doing for the Terra Scout experiment. As I mentioned, Hennen was an expert in imagery analysis. He was the sort of guy who would be poring over imagery returned by sneaky satellites or high-altitude airplanes to figure out what was going on on the ground. Well, with Terra Scout, it seems they were cutting out the middleman. Hennen would be using some specialized optics to look at a bunch of predetermined sites on the ground. His expert space-borne observations would be compared to observations made by folks on Earth using traditional methods. There was a huge list of locations, including Ford Island in Hawaii, Pretoria in South Africa, Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, the U.S. Embassy in Manila, the list goes on. My favorite was Brisbane 2, which I assume is the exciting sequel to Brisbane. Some of the sites, such as Cape Canaveral, also had calibration targets on the ground, big circular disks as small as 8 feet in diameter. This would help determine the smallest feature size Hennen was able to observe. I wasn't able to find out how useful they found the exercise to be, but Hennen was able to spot almost all of his targets. You'll never believe it, but it was too cloudy over Florida to see Cape Canaveral. Another experiment in sort of the same vein was M88-1, or Military Man in Space, carried out by Mission Specialist 3, Mario Runco. For this experiment, Runco would be using a gyroscopically stabilized digital camera with a 1,000mm lens to take photos of certain targets. After taking the photos, Runco could view them on a monitor. These days, that might not sound like a big deal, but the world was different in 1991. Being able to view the static images right after taking them made a big difference for the task at hand. Runco could spot targets in real time, adjusting his response to them. And then once he got the shot, he could use the monitor to take his time when analyzing it. It took away the time pressure of having to look quickly as the target was briefly visible. To add on to this, Runco also had a UHF antenna he would use to communicate directly with people on the ground. The goal of all this was to see what somebody in space could contribute to enhance air, naval, and ground force operations. The Maritime Observation Experiments in Space experiment supported naval ops. The Battlefield Surveillance from Space experiment supported ground ops. And Night Mist was an encrypted UHF communications link with a needlessly cool name. The experiment worked for the most part, but the UHF comms failed, forcing them to use the usual communication links. But that just cleared up a flight deck window for Hennen to do more Terra Scout observations. The whole thing seems sort of optimistic to me. For it to work in real operations, you'd have to have a crew on a shuttle or a station that just happened to be passing over your area of interest at a useful time, while the sun is out, while the weather is good. I think this is about as close as we got to the manned orbiting laboratory, and I think there's a reason MOL never flew. Runco and Hennen weren't the only ones looking out the window. The two spacecraft vets on board, Gregory and Musgrave, agreed that the atmosphere looked noticeably dirtier and hazier than on their previous flights, most likely due to the Mount Pinatubo eruption. It seems that you don't need sophisticated research platforms to notice the difference in air quality when an event as dramatic as a volcano eruption happens. On flight day 4, our narrative will actually return to Earth for a little bit. 
As he tells in an oral history interview, in the middle of the night, flight director Milt Heflin was overseeing a quiet Orbit 2 shift. This was the shift that kept an eye on things while the crew was asleep and helped to plan the next day. Atlantis was coming up on the brief part of the orbit over the Indian Ocean where Tedris was not available, so it would go through a loss of signal. It was at that moment that the flight dynamics officer, Fido, pinged flight, Heflin, and let him know that he had just heard from the mountain about a problem. The mountain in this case is NORAD, which tracks stuff in orbit using radar. According to Fido, an object was going to be getting alarmingly close to the shuttle, and they think it was a dead satellite of Turkish origin. Turkish origin. Did I mention that it's the day before Thanksgiving? Because it's the day before Thanksgiving. Since I know that a number of listeners aren't from the United States, I'll point out that Thanksgiving is an American holiday which traditionally involves a big turkey dinner, and turkeys are very much associated with Thanksgiving. Heflin, however, missed the hint and focused on the problem, asking when the time of closest approach was. Fido said it was only about seven minutes from now, not nearly enough time to even wake up the crew, let alone do anything about it. And on top of that, the time of closest approach was during the Tedris gap. Heflin could not believe that they were getting such a serious warning with so little time to prepare. Why had NORAD missed this? At this time, FAO, the flight activities officer, who was apparently in cahoots with Fido, updated the big screens at the front of the room. Fido told Flight that they had a visual of the object up on screen, but Heflin was too focused on the problem and flustered by the ridiculously late warning. So he got up and headed to the bathroom. On the way out, he stopped by Ecom's desk and asked him to check for any crew cabin environmental issues when they reestablished contact, and to just quietly give him a sign if they were okay. He then left the moker, the control room. After Heflin got back, Ecom gave him the heads up that everything was fine, while Fido frantically tried to get his attention. Eventually, Fido gets Heflin to look at the screen, and he finally sees that on the big screen is a turkey. In orbit. It was a joke. Get it? A satellite of Turkish origin? Heflin was simultaneously relieved and furious, but at least that was the end of it. Except, sitting at Heflin's console was the guy whose job it was to keep an eye on things for fellow astronaut Brewster Shaw, who at this point is the program manager for the space shuttle. This guy had been in a back support room and had heard about the conjunction on the loop, and also didn't realize it was a joke, and had woken Shaw up at 2 in the morning to tell him about it. In the end, no real damage was done, other than to Milt Heflin's heart rate. Some very stern words were exchanged, and the whole thing was put behind them, but I think it's a good illustration of why a different attitude is required while you're in a mission control room. It's great to be friends with your boss and to have that kind of relationship, but when six human lives and a multi-billion dollar asset are on the line, it's time to put on your game face. The next day, actual Thanksgiving, the crew were awoken to the sound of turkey gobbles. I appreciated how the chronology of wake-up calls pointed out that they were recorded turkey gobbles. No birds in the moker, please. <laughs> Apparently at a loss for what song represents Thanksgiving, Mission Control decided to just go with something food-related and play Jimmy Buffett's Cheeseburger in Paradise. In keeping with tradition, the entire crew drifted down to the mid-deck to enjoy a Thanksgiving dinner together. On the menu were turkey, gravy, noodles, which seems out of place, cranberry sauce, and something called pumpkin delights. For Gregory and Musgrave, it must have felt familiar, since they had also celebrated Thanksgiving together on orbit two years earlier. 
And just to add insult to Fido's injury from the earlier prank, later that day Atlantis had to actually perform a 7 second RCS burn to actually avoid some debris. In this case, Cosmos 851, an expended upper stage from a Soviet electronics intelligence satellite, would have passed within around 7 kilometers of the orbiter. And if that sounds familiar, it's because the exact same thing happened last episode. I even had to check to make sure I hadn't mixed something up. At least it's a different rocket body this time. Like most shuttle flights, STS-44 carried a number of minor modifications and enhancements. One of them was a new Inertial Measurement Unit, or IMU. These are devices that essentially keep track of how they move, so computers can figure out where the spacecraft is and how it's moving and pointing. The shuttle has three of them because it's super duper important that they work. For this flight, the number 3 IMU was replaced by a new and creatively named High Accuracy Inertial Navigation System. It did the same job, but was smaller, lighter, and better. Probably not cheaper, though. The good news is that this new number 3 IMU was working great. The bad news was that on flight day 7, the crew woke up to the news that the number 2 IMU was not. The IMU had actually been powered down shortly after the mission began in order to save resources for the lengthy mission, but every once in a while it was turned back on for routine checks. During the latest checks, it had started wildly swinging around in position and velocity. This is very bad. Bad enough that Mission Control told the crew to stop preparations for the day's activities. That's because mission rules dictate that if you lose an IMU, you come home at the earliest reasonable point. It's not a drop-everything emergency, but it does end the mission. The ground walked Commander Gregory through the restart procedures for the IMU, but nothing worked. It was busted. Time to change the plan. The primary mission had already been achieved, of course, but astronauts are pretty driven people and they wanted to finish as many of the secondary objectives as possible, so they quickly swung into action. Runcode joined Hennen in working through Terra Scout objectives, hoping to add as many to the completed list as possible. The crew also put their heads together to try to salvage as much science as they could from the lower body negative pressure experiment. The trouble was that you can't sit in the bag for four hours faster. It simply takes time. Jim Voss had an idea, though. He radioed down to ask if there would be any problem with him continuing to get work done while still in the LBNP. I mean, it's not like you really need your legs in microgravity. After a brief consultation on the ground, they said they didn't have a problem with it if he was willing to try. And try he did. According to his crewmates, while in the bag, he took up the volume of two people, and when he appeared, everybody knew it. They called him Caterpillar Man. Flight Day 7 ended up being a little more frantic than planned, but the crew were able to crunch through almost all of their objectives, resulting in a successful flight. So all that was left to do on Flight Day 8 was to come home. Just like mission rules related to IMU failure dictated a truncated mission, they also dictated a lake bed landing, so Atlantis was heading to Edwards. Along the way though, Commander Gregory joked that he could turn for a downwind landing in Hawaii instead. Capcom Marsha Evans said, no, don't land there, keep coming. Gregory resisted the temptation of Hawaiian shores and soon eased Atlantis down to a gentle landing on the dry lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base. Since the opportunity had presented itself, the ground requested that he not touch the brakes until he approached the end of the runway. This would allow them to test the hardness of the lake bed. Atlantis rolled unimpeded for almost two minutes in the longest rollout of the shuttle program. 
The orbiter was traveling less than 20 miles per hour when Gregory finally applied the brakes as the end of the runway approached. I'm not sure what the end of the runway means in the context of a lake bed. I think it's just like a box painted on the dirt, but whatever. As Atlantis's wheels came to a stop, it marked the last time that a space shuttle would land on the lake bed, its proper runways from here on out. The 6-day, 22-hour, 50-minute, and 43-second-long mission was slightly shorter than expected, but was marked down as a success. It had been almost exactly 10 years since another shortened mission also landed at Edwards, STS-2. It's hard to believe, but all of these shuttle flights have taken place over only 10 years. The STS-1 anniversary was actually back around the STS-37 episode, and I missed it. Whoops. Much like these 44 missions, time flies. One last little note here. It's been a while since I've done the usual slew of boilerplate reminders about the show, so here it is again. If you'd like to reach out with a question, a correction, or just to say hi, the most reliable method is to send me an email at jp at thespaceabove.us. I can't promise that I'll always answer every email forever, but at the time of this writing, I've been sticking to it. It just takes me a few days. You can also follow me on Twitter, where I'm at spaceaboveus, removing the the to save a few characters. If you have a short question, I usually answer a little quicker there. Also, for every episode, I post some photos and videos and stuff like that on the Twitter feed, so check it out. I should also remind you that the show's Patreon exists. The Space Above Us has always been free and always will be free, and it's also not in any danger of going away. But since a number of generous people have asked to help support the show, I made a PayPal button at thespaceabove.us and a Patreon page at patreon.com slash thespaceaboveus. The Patreon has a few extra goodies, like a dedicated chat room, monthly voice chats, and my commentary for some space movies. They're just MP3s that you play at the same time as the movie, so I talk on top of it, but it's pretty effective. I've already done six movies, including nonsense like Space Camp, and great films like Apollo 13. And as of this week, there's also one of my all-time favorite space movies, Armageddon. Yes, everything about this movie is ridiculous, but it's got heart. Again, you can check all that out at patreon.com slash thespaceaboveus. Thank you to all who have donated, thank you to all who have shared the show with friends, and most of all, thank you to all who have listened. Next time, 1992 is here, so let's ring in the new year with a Space Lab mission. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.